Welcome to the First Baptist Barberville Weekly Sermon Podcast. At FBC Barberville, our mission is to gather, grow, give, and go. Join us for live worship on the Court Square in Barberville, Kentucky, or to learn more about our church, visit fbcbarberville.com. Here is Pastor Tyler Shields. good to see everybody this Resurrection Sunday morning, and I sincerely do appreciate you worshiping with us here at First Baptist today. I'm partial, but I think we got a really great church here at First Baptist. There's a lot of good stuff going on. If you're, if you're not aware of all the things, we've got all kinds of kids' activities. I've, I've heard a rumor, Shane, there's going to be a really big Bible school this year. The, the Bible school to, to end all Bible schools will take place this summer. Uh, lots of great stuff. God's doing a lot of wonderful things. He's saving souls. He's changing lives all through the ministries of this church. And I'm proud to be your pastor. Thank you for being here. And uh, just another thing you may not be aware of is as a church, we've been going through the Bible together. We started on New Year's reading through the Word together and then preaching through the Word. Uh, whatever you're reading that week, you'll hear a sermon about And I tell the church this all the time, it's never too late to start reading your Bible. So we do have these reading plans available. If you'd like one, I encourage you to take one and jump right in even today. It's never too late to pick up and start reading. So that being said, we've been going through the Word together, and we found ourselves last week in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 91. Matter of fact, right in the middle of God's Word. And even in that familiar Psalm, we found a picture of Christ. And this morning, I'm not going to depart from our reading plan. I'm still going to preach from the book of Psalms. I'm probably one of the very few pastors in the world today preaching from the book of Psalms. But I promise you this, we will see Jesus even here in Psalm 73, which is where we want to be this morning. The Psalms are really a collection of other writings, of songs, of uh, poems, of, of even prayers From a a vast array of people, different authors at different times. People like King David who wrote many of them. His son King Solomon who wrote several of them. Even Moses himself who wrote at least one of them. This morning our Psalm 73 was written by a man by the name of Asaph. And Asaph is a pretty interesting character in the Old Testament. He was a Levite who was incredibly gifted and talented. And he was commissioned and assigned by King David to essentially what we would say he was a worship leader, for lack of better terms, in King David's court and in the service of the Lord. And Asaph was not only gifted in writing and composing and putting music and words together, but Asaph was also considered a prophet. Among his people. And this, this fascinating character, this, this singing prophet, penned the words of Psalm 73. Let's read these words together, all 28 verses. The Bible says that God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And notice what Asaph says But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, 
Pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one walking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven? But you. And I desire nothing on earth. But you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever. Notice how he concludes. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell all about about all you do. So depending on what translation or version of the Bible you have, you may notice that this particular psalm is sometimes labeled different things. It's called in one translation, God's ways vindicated. I think the, uh, maybe the New King James labels it the tragedy of the wicked and the blessedness of trusting God. I think if we were to put a simple label on this psalm, we might simply say the goodness of God. And this psalm moves from questioning God and questioning God's will and questioning God's ways to an even deeper, even deeper faith in Him and all that He's doing. Now, again, this was originally written in the Hebrew language. And this psalm can be broken down into three major sections, each beginning with the Hebrew word that means truly or surely. And it progresses from a problem that the author writes about into a turning point to finally a final or even eternal solution. Likewise, we see three things displayed in this psalm relating to Jesus himself. And I want to point this out to you. Three things that Jesus had to do. And the first is found in the first 12 verses. And the first thing we see is that Jesus had to struggle. He had to struggle. Everything in Jesus' life, everything, pointed to that that moment with him hanging on that cross and dying for our sins. His temptation in the wilderness points to the cross. His wrestling with God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane was leading him to the cross. Think about even the humble circumstances into which Jesus was born. 
born not only in a borrowed place, but being born in Bethlehem of Judea and then laid in a manger. Bethlehem of Judea being the place, the region, where all of these sacrificial lambs were raised and put out to pasture so that they could be taken into Jerusalem on the day of their sacrifice. And he was laid in one of their mangers, just like a sacrificial lamb would have been laid in that manger. He was wrapped for his protection, just like those lambs would have been wrapped for their protection in those swaddling clothes to keep those unblemished lambs unblemished. Jesus had to struggle as we struggle with things like hunger, thirst, pain, loss, betrayal, grief, and even temptation. And as difficult as these things were, Jesus had to struggle with them in order to save us who also struggle. How many people struggle with stuff? Apparently people struggle with a line. I just called you out on it. We have struggles, don't we? Our Lord also had struggles. Dr. Richard Belcher writes this. He says, if one sees the eye that speaks this psalm as Christ himself, then it describes his struggle with the goodness of God in light of the seeming triumph of the wicked over him in his death. The struggle in Gethsemane included the prospect that he was going to be delivered over to judgment, to the judgment of wicked hands, according to Acts 2, to experience the judgment of God against sin on the cross. It seems the wicked have triumphed in mocking his kingship, according to Luke 23, and in getting, getting rid of him in his death. Christ even noticed those evil, wicked people seeming to prosper. And I think that's one of the things that even Christians and non-Christians alike struggle with is, is we look around and we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked, of evil people, while at the same time we see the suffering of people that we think are righteous. And we ask this question, the same thing the psalmist is struggling with, is how can a good God, how can a holy God allow bad things to happen to good people while allowing good things to happen to bad people? Something that we most of us struggle with at one time or another in our lives. And many times in life we find ourselves not only wrestling with this apparent injustice, but just like Christ himself, we find ourselves wrestling with the very will of God the Father. Just like Jesus, we find ourselves sometimes coming before God, begging God if there's any other way to get through this. If there's any other way, let it be that way. God, don't make me drink from this cup that's placed before me. Find another way. And Jesus struggled in this same way. I, 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 when I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, I think about going to Israel and walking through those olive groves and, and maybe even walking up beside of the same tree that maybe Christ himself was knelt down praying at to God the Father. And he prayed so hard on the night that he was betrayed in that garden. He prayed so fervently and in such anguish, the Bible says that the blood vessels surrounding his sweat glands in his head ruptured, causing him to sweat great drops of blood. He struggled. He struggled intensely with God the Father's will. He struggled with the pain of betrayal, with the knowledge of all that suffering that was to come, with the understanding of not only the physical agony that he was about to endure, but also the spiritual burden of bearing all of humanity's sins upon himself in God's judgment. He struggled. 
He said, Father, if there is any other way, let it be that way. If there's any other means of salvation for these people, take this cup from me and and make that happen. But in his faith and in his obedience to God the Father, what did Jesus finally pray? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, Jesus had to struggle because we who he came to save also struggle. And he had to be like us. And not only did Jesus struggle, Jesus actually suffered. Jesus was tempted. He wrestled with God's will. He faced similar struggles that we face. But the thing about Jesus was that Jesus never sinned against God. It's the thing that separates his humanity from ours. That he lived a completely perfect and obedient life. If Jesus was to be the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world, Jesus had to be Perfect. The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of goats and bulls and all these other sacrifices were never enough to truly atone for man's sin. And so it would take a perfect sacrifice. It would take not only a perfect sacrifice, but it would take the very Son of God becoming a man and living a perfect life to die once and for all for all of our sins. And so because of who he was and what he was, Jesus had to suffer. It's just like the psalmist says here in verse 14. Jesus was afflicted and Jesus was punished on our behalf. And I want you to understand, there were two different motivations for Jesus going to the cross. The first and perhaps most important was his obedience to the will of God the Father. Jesus loved his Father and wanted to obey the will of God the Father Perfectly, And we see that reflected in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the second motivation that Christ had in going to the cross was out of his abundant love for me and you. Jesus knew that if he did not suffer, then he would betray not only God's will, but he would betray God's people. Think about all those generations of Israelites that led up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that would have been a waste. And not only that, but Jesus, had he not suffered, he would have betrayed us to an eternity in hell. The psalmist says, though, when I entered God's sanctuary, when I entered God's presence, is another way to put that, I understood their destiny. You see, Jesus knew that the only hope that we had, literally the only saving grace for mankind was for him to suffer and bleed and die on the cross for us. He knew that he would be flogged nearly to the point of death. He knew that that cat of nine tails would wrap around his flesh and rip the skin and flesh from his bones. He knew the words of Isaiah the prophet who said his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble any human being. Jesus knew that they would drive those metal spikes through his feet and hands, pinning him to that old rugged cross. He knew that they would raise him up where he would suffocate under his own body weight and suffer and eventually die. He knew what crucifixion would entail. He knew that it was one of the most painful and barbaric forms of execution. One of the most horrific ways to die. So horrific that it's given its own word. It's the English word that we have today, excruciating. Which means literally from the cross. He knew all of this. 
And yes, he struggled with accepting this fate. But in the end, Jesus chose willingly to suffer for you because Jesus loves you. He loves you this morning. God the Father loves you enough to allow His Son to do that for you. But our final point is this. It's the reason why. Jesus had to struggle. Jesus had to suffer. But Jesus had to save us. There was no plan B. Jesus was the plan of God's salvation from the very beginning. It was either Jesus save us. Or we be condemned. There is no other way. Jesus is the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the law and prophets. Jesus is the only means of salvation. And the only hope that a hopeless world can have. That's what we're celebrating this morning. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. That everything was accomplished on Christ's cross. That Christ's suffering and His death and the shedding of His blood paid the penalty for all of our sins for all time. He literally became our substitute. Meaning He literally took your place on that cross. It should have been you and it should have been me. But Jesus went to the cross for us. Enduring what we could not endure. And allowing us to escape God's wrath while God poured it right on His Son. You see, the hope and the power of the resurrection that we celebrate this morning. It's not only looking forward. The blessed hope that we have is wonderful. Looking forward to that future eternal life and life beyond death. But it also... the Let me tell you, folks, the resurrection also looks back to the cross. It looks back like this flashing sign or this great exclamation point in history that points at the cross. And it just screams, the cross was enough. Christ was enough. The price that he paid, the blood that he shed, it was enough to cover your sins forever. And the proof, the evidence is that he walked out on the third day alive. The psalmist concludes saying with certainty. And I want you to hear this. He concludes saying that those far from him will certainly perish. That one day God will destroy all of those who are unfaithful to him. And the Bible as a whole makes it abundantly clear that there is life after death for all of us. But there's only two options in that, depending on what you choose to do with Jesus. God says later in Revelation 21, He says, The one who conquers will inherit these things, talking about the the glories of heaven and eternal life. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Notice what he says. He says, But the cowards... The faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Folks, it's clear, abundantly clear, that life after death is either heaven with Jesus or it's hell. There's no in-between. 
And the difference in where you end up it depends not, not on your works or not on your good deeds. It doesn't depend on the things that you hope to accomplish in this life or actually do accomplish in this life. It doesn't depend on how many mistakes you've made or how many sins that you've committed. The difference in those things and where you end up for the rest of eternity, listen closely, depends on what you choose to do with Jesus this morning. He struggled for you. He suffered. And he literally bled and died for you. And he rose for you. And if you're his, he's coming back for you. But if you're not his and you're not saved this morning, the only other option is an eternity in hell. I want to be as clear as I can about that. There's a story from Dr. Roy Fish, a professor of evangelism. And Dr. Fish shares his testimony this way, talking about being a young boy who grew up in church. And as a young man, 8, 9, 10 years old, he began to realize his need for Christ. He realized that he was not saved and he needed to be saved. And so one morning, Roy Walks down the aisle of that big Baptist church. He takes the preacher by the hand. Says, preacher, I don't know exactly what it means, but I know I need to be saved. Preacher says, Roy, we're so proud of you. We're going to get you baptized next week. And gives him a card to fill out. Points him to a pew. Says, we're so proud of you, son. They baptize him. But he didn't feel any different. Life goes on. Roy gets a little older. By now, he's in his teenage years, and he begins to realize, you know, I went through this process, but I don't feel like I'm saved. I had no peace. So as a teenage young man, Roy walks back down the same aisle of that same big Baptist church, takes the same pastor by the hand. says, Pastor, I don't know what's going on, but I know I'm not saved, and I need to be saved. Pastor says, Roy, we're so proud of you. We're going to baptize you. Fill this card out. Have a seat over here for a minute. Same thing. No change. No different. No security. No peace. Roy leaves home. He goes to college. While he's in college, he begins to wrestle with these same thoughts and emotions. He begins to dig a little deeper into Scripture. And he realizes, again... I am not saved. And I know I need to be saved. And so one weekend, Roy goes back home. Same church, same town. Walks down the same aisle. Takes the same preacher by the hand. Says, preacher, we've been through this before, but I'm not saved. And I need to be saved. Preacher says, Roy, we're so proud of you. Fill out this card. We'll get you baptized this evening. So that afternoon, Roy went back to his mom and dad's house that he grew up in, and he sat on that front porch, (laughs) just playing all these things over in his head. He says he wrestled with his salvation and what it meant to be saved and how to be saved. He just knew that none of this had saved him. He says he began to think and pray through all this. He said to the words of this old hymn he'd heard a hundred times as a child come into his mind. And it said this, said, only trust Him. Only trust Him. 
Only trust Him now, and He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Roy said, he began to pray to God. He said, God, I don't know what I need to do. He said, but I know I need to be saved. He said, God, right now I trust you with every ounce of every fiber of my being to save my soul. And he said, in that moment, peace flooded his heart like never before. And he was saved on that front porch. Now I share that story to say this. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're not saved and you know that you need to be saved. Because you don't have that peace in your heart that Roy talks about in his testimony. Maybe you've even gone through those motions before. My goodness, maybe you've walked right down this very aisle. Took a preacher like myself by the hand. Maybe you've even been baptized, but you were not saved. Well, this morning, would you be saved? It is that simple to only trust Jesus, not yourself, not somebody else. Put your trust in him who died on the cross and rose from the grave for your salvation. Would you stand as we close this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you in this moment. Lord, we we know that Christ is risen. We know that he's alive and we know that he's here this morning. God, we can feel His presence. And Lord, as you search our hearts, God, I pray that you would show us where we stand with you. God, if there's someone here that is not saved, God, I pray that they would be so burdened for eternity that they'd have to choose Jesus today. Lord, maybe there's someone here that has even gone through those motions. They've taken those steps, but they just don't know Jesus. God, I pray that you'd save them today. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. And God, for those of us that are saved, help us to live our Christian life in the power of your resurrection. Bold and unashamed for the gospel of Christ, that others may come to know him too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you this morning you're not saved and you want to be saved, just invite you to come down this aisle as we sing a song of invitation today. If there's someone on your heart that you want to come and just pray for, this altar is open and God is ready to hear your prayers. Why don't you come as we sing? Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon podcast. Please subscribe, but also join us live in person on the Court Square in Barberville or find us on YouTube by searching FBC Barberville, on Instagram at first underscore Baptist underscore Barberville, on Twitter at Barberville FBC, or on our Facebook page, First Baptist Barberville.